<laughs> spring yet, uh, winter, spring. Uh, this will probably never happen again. I'm just going to say that. Probably never happen again. Uh, I can almost guarantee it. If it does, great. But um, this is uh, quite a gift. So, um, Well, as Peter said, guys, we are in uh, the book of Jude right now, finishing a three-week series on the book of Jude. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or your uh, devices of whatever kind, that'd be great. It's easy to find in the Bible. It's the second to last book of the whole Bible, right before Revelation. Uh, it's one chapter book, though, so easy to miss. So uh, uh, be careful not to skip over it. Right after third John, I think, and right before Revelation. So uh, we'll be in Jude 17 to 25 today. It's a one-chapter book, uh, so the last nine verses. Uh, the occasion, if you uh, remember, if you've been here, uh, is that Jude was uh, a Christian in the first century, writing this letter to the broader church at that time. So not to one city, like a lot of Paul's letters do. They address a church in, like, Philippi or Ephesus or Thessalonica or something like that. And so the books are called or named after that. This is more of a general letter to the church uh, at large, possibly with a bent towards the, the, the Jewish Christians of the day, so the church around, in and around Jerusalem, uh, but certainly applies, obviously, to, to, to all of us um, throughout history, right up to today, right in this very room, so, uh, but possibly with a bent to that originally. Uh, the occasion, though, is he says right in the first part of the book, it's interesting, he says, I was going to write to you about our common salvation, which means it, it probably would have been and kind of sounded like one of Paul's letters that he wrote to the Philippians or the Ephesians, if you know, know those letters and kind of how they sound, they're just about the gospel or about our common salvation, saying we have, we're, we're partnered in the gospel, writing about church life in light of the gospel and uh, a variety of ethical things at the end of those letters or something like that. So he was probably going to write a letter kind of like that, but then he found it necessary, he says, at the beginning to write about false teachers within the church, kind of outside the church, but infiltrating the church with the false doctrines. So he uses the phrase grace perverters or changers, people that are changing the doctrine of the grace of God. Also, uh, apostates, uh, which comes from a Greek word meaning to rebel or fall away from God. So um, it's a big thing to understand in this book is that when he talks about threats to the church, which a lot of New Testament letters do this, they talk about it as though it's kind of out there in the world. He talks about it as though it's even in the church a lot of times. In fact, it's a common thing that we don't think about, maybe, I know I don't as much until I'm reminded of this in the New Testament, is a lot of the warnings are about uh, so-called Christians. So not obvious deniers of the faith. That might almost not even require a warning because it would be so, so obvious. Uh, but a lot of the warnings are about these, these, subtle, these uh, subtle teachings that kind of sound like gospel, but they're not. So they can actually arise within the church. Then he, he addresses the heart too. So out there, kind of within the community of God, within the church, but then in here as well. And, and to watch our heart that we're not entertaining false truths about Jesus and his grace and what it means to be, to be saved. In fact, Jesus is called the truth in the New Testament. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, which uh, implies there are lies out there about what it means to be saved, lies about who God is and who we are before him that we have to, to understand and have our antennas up for so that we can reject them and just be on guard against them for ourselves, but also for the sake of our churches. So there's a strong bent towards leaders in the church for this, uh, whether they're formal leaders or um, community group leaders or something like that who are responsible for others, mentor types, just friends of people in the church, uh, but also just for all of us. Jude is a general letter, not just for Christian leaders, but for all Christians to have our uh, antennas up and to be on guard against, um, against false doctrine. But actually, I want to mention this verse, too, as a way to kick us off today. In Acts 20 in the New Testament, this is in context, the Apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus. It's a city he planted a church in. And he's speaking to the Ephesian elders or the overseers or the pastors of that church and as a way to kind of uh, 
send them off a bit or kind of commission them uh, unto pastoral ministry because Paul, is this lead pastor type, is leaving. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock or the church in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So really, this is the same warning as Jude, all of Jude, just in a few verses. This is written a little bit more towards leaders, but it could be applied to everybody. Jude has more of that kind of general uh, bent towards it. Uh, But he says here, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the church. So it's a church that, or a people that that God purchased away from sin and death with his own blood. So referring to Jesus' death on the cross, he died for our sins. And belief in that is what makes us the church. And so pay careful attention to yourselves, your own heart, and to the flock around you. Uh, And he says, I know in 29, I know that after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you. And this is key. From among your own selves. So from among the church will arise people speaking twisted things. So teaching things that are not true about Jesus, about grace, about different things theologically, God's character. And to draw away the disciples after them. So it's a prediction. It's a prophecy. And uh, Jude actually addresses this too. We'll come back to how important is to understand how the Bible predicts this. And so we can then not be surprised when it happens and we can be all the more on guard against it, again, for our hearts and for the sake of our brothers and sisters uh, as well inside uh, the church. So the big question we've been asking then throughout the book and we'll especially ask today is what is our response to such grave warnings? This is a strong admonishing style letter in the New Testament, kind of like Galatians or, uh, or James or something like that. Uh, What is our response to such grave warnings about false teachers and teachings? We've already said in this book, we've addressed things like, uh, and I kind of already mentioned this, but reject those teachings. Uh, Know this book really, really, really well so that you can know not just what it says, but know what it doesn't say. Uh, A lot of times we think it says things and it it just doesn't. Someone told us something once, oh, I think the Bible says this and actually doesn't. And so it's a teaching that we need to be on guard against so we can can, uh, aptly reject it. In part, it looks like looking at our own heart, uh, believing a true gospel afresh. In part, it, it, it looks like trusting that vengeance is the Lord's. Uh, God has a jealous love for his church, and he won't allow it to be attacked for long. And so at the end of the section last week, if you're here for that, we, we, we looked at that, how Judah's actually encouraging the church that this won't go on forever, that Jesus will come back, and he will, to pull from one of Jesus' parables, he will sort the weeds from the wheat. And so as the parable goes, he says, there's weed and weeds, <laughs> wheat and weeds growing up together. Uh, and he said, and, and the weeds are, are people that look Christian, but they're not. And the weed are true Christians. And he says, allow them to grow together. At the very end, when I return, I'll pluck the weeds, I'll bundle them, throw them into the fire. But I'll, I'll gather and harvest the wheat and bring them into my, to my storehouse or my barn, which is a sign of salvation. So again, allow them to grow together. So the idea is that amongst the church, there are true and false converts. And so uh, in, in the spirit of that, part of, part of the answer is, I think, to act against it sometimes. Part of it is just to trust that, that vengeance belongs to God's and he's in control and he um, loves those people still. There's time for them to be saved. Uh, but at some point, he's going to come back and, and he is protecting his church, but kind of truly vindicate his church as well and, and save them. And then in part, we talked about last week, getting in community, how important it is to know other Christians well, 
so they can speak into your life and exhort you. It says in Hebrews 3, exhort one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sin deceives, it tricks, uh, it speaks things that aren't true. It tells us things about ourselves that aren't true and about Jesus. And we need to know this book and know each other well enough. It's kind of this um, you know, two-sided coin in a sense or just kind of two-pronged approach to protecting ourselves, knowing what the gospel is really well and knowing other Christians so that we can be on the receiving end of encouragement but also be the one that gives it as well when we see people start to slip away from the truth. We talked about those four things basically and Jude's going to continue with the how to respond today in the final uh, nine verses. So especially we're going to look at this idea of keeping yourselves in the love of God from Jude 17 uh, to 25. So let me, let's read that in full here to, uh, to begin. Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to, show, uh, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Okay, so back to the, the big question that's kind of been uh, here throughout the past three weeks, but especially today, is uh, what is our response to such grave warnings about false teachings and about apostasy or rebellion in our own hearts, this encouragement to start and finish, to start in grace and finish uh, with, with grace. Uh, but again, just to understand what's happening sometimes in churches when false teachings percolate or bubble up in different contexts uh, in, in the community of faith. The first is, he says right, right away in verse 17, he says, but you, so a strong kind of conjunction here, the but, and then it's, it's kind of pulling from last week when he's talking a lot about the descriptions of false teachers, what they're like, the sins they commit, and how they don't continue in the faith, and so forth, and I won't go back into all of that, but he says, but you're different. You're actually Christians. Isn't that interesting how sure he is here? He's saying, you actually believe the gospel, so you're not like them. It's a don't be like them encouragement, but it's also a statement of an indicative. You are not like them, because you actually believe the gospel, and he knows a lot of these people. So, but you, beloved, or loved ones of God, the church, the true church, must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, referring to a lot of the people that wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. Jesus' disciples who became apostles, which means kind of the sent ones, the first Christians. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions implied inside the church. So Jude's point here is that this was all predestined to take place. False teachers and false teachings were foreseen and prophesied about, predicted by the apostles of the faith. Again, uh, these, these first Christian types. And if we ask what, where that comes from, what are they alluding to, what's Jude re referencing here? Uh, there's a number of things we can say. I think first, 
Uh, it's possible that he's alluding to some extra biblical apostolic witness or creeds or tradition that we, uh, that we don't have, but uh, maybe even applying common sense because this is something that would have been experienced by people in the first century. So uh, there's certainly uh, a possibility there. But more biblically, as we've already seen today, we see things like this in the Bible, Acts 20.30. This is, this is uh, something that was written down by Luke and something that Paul actually said in history to an actual church, to real leaders in a church that was probably disseminated out uh, to the different churches in Asia Minor and down uh, into Jerusalem as well and beyond. Where Paul says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So future tense, right? This will happen. This is going to happen in the church. Be on guard. Also in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, this is a, a paraphrase um, here, but where uh, Paul says, Antichrist will, again future tense, will come into the church of God and teach lawlessness. So lawlessness just being licentiousness or sin. Um, Jude talks about sensuality. Uh, but also here in Jude, it talks about how these types are devoid of the spirit. So lawlessness is not just uh, blatant sin, uh, it's also anti-gospel stuff. Uh, so a lot of times, like in Paul, for example, you see spirit and works contrasted. Spirit and flesh contrasted. So the idea is the spirit is what God does. The spirit saves. You, you, you've been saved by the spirit, he'll say, and flesh or works is what we do. And so they're not, they don't really go together. Uh, it's, it's an approach to understanding what it means to be saved that are at odds. So one way to understand this then is the Antichrist, if, if that's, um, or just to define that, Antichrist is of course anti what Christ is all about, which is grace, right? So a lot of times Antichrists uh, will be, uh, whether they're out there or inside churches at times, uh, teaching about saving ourselves by works. Uh, if anyone ever teaches you that to be saved, you have to do something besides believe in the gospel, they are whether they would say this or not. I mean, there are different levels of being an antichrist. Uh, they, they could even just be a believer, but just be misguided. But in that moment, they are, they are anti-Christian. They're anti-grace. They're being an antichrist uh, in their approach to theology, to who Jesus is and what it means to be, to be saved. And, and a lot of times, again, because this is happening in the church, this won't be easily identifiable. Uh, if you remember back in Genesis 3, if you know that story about how uh, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He didn't come at them with some kind of atheistic teaching. You know, like, he didn't come at them and say, actually, God doesn't exist. So being an anti-Christ is not denying Jesus' existence. It's acknowledging a lot of truth. It's acknowledging a lot of good things, a lot of beautiful things. But it's subtly sneaking in a lie amongst the truths where it gets really hard to believe, or really hard to see it. And so what happens then is Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, they kind of took the truth with the lie. They were deceived and they fell into sin. That's what happens a lot. And that's actually what we have to be on guard against a lot in the church is not obvious things like Jesus doesn't exist or um, it's really important that you all go out today and commit adultery. It's like, we'd all like say, what? You know, we'd say, no, I think that's a lie, you know, kind of thing or whatever. Uh, but these, these more subtle truths about Jesus is pretty amazing. But you also need to do a lot of good things to be saved. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's an antichrist teaching. That is something that's percolating up in the churches of the first century that Jude and Paul and others are identifying and calling out. 
and saying it's only by grace that we're saved. Like that verse from Ephesians 2 today that we read, it's by grace you're saved. Uh, by grace, God's grace, through our faith in that grace that saves us, so that no one can boast because no one does anything to be saved. If they did, you could boast, and Ephesians 2 would be wrong because there, there will be something we could boast in. But as it is, we can boast in nothing because God does everything. If we do a percent of the work, half a percent, to get to, to, to get to God, to climb our way towards him, there technically is something we can boast in. But Christianity is a boastless religion. Even the fact that we believe, even our good works, as the passage said that Spencer read, is, uh, is a gift. We can't even boast in the good things we do as believers. There are gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to us for us to walk in and to embrace and to work out and to keep in step to quote from Galatians 5, 25. So. All right, so overall, though, just a little bit of a commentary there on what Judah's probably alluding to and places in the Bible we can see these predictions take place. But the big thing he's trying to do here, I think, on kind of a pastoral level is um, with these things in mind, but this is general encouragement too, is he's trying to encourage the Christians who are probably kind of weary of this. Or at least they got the letter and they're, they're thinking, uh, this is kind of a fearful thing. This is kind of a scary deal. Because you're not just saying there's a clear, obvious distinction between Christian and non-Christian. Because there is a lot of times, there is that. But he's saying sometimes there isn't. You know, and for anybody, some of you guys have seen people who you've known that have been maybe even mentors to you in the faith who have left the faith. That's, that's a terrible thing. That's a very scary thing because who can not in that moment think, am I next? How's that not going to happen to me? If someone more mature in the faith, or so I thought, has left it, am I going to continue? Am I going to persevere? These are scary things. And so part of what he's trying to do, not just here, we'll get to more throughout the morning here, but the rest of the passage, but in part here, he's going to say, this was meant to encourage, this is meant to encourage you. God saw this coming. It's not a sign of failure for a church to have this. It's all part of the plan. You know, if, if uh, Spencer and myself or another pastor fully embrace false teaching, you guys should run for the hills and never come back, you know, so there's that. But what he's saying is, a lot of times, though, it's not going to happen from leadership. It's going to percolate up uh, in different areas. And he says, in those moments, that's actually not a sign of failure. There's a degree of normality to that. It's been predicted. It's been foreseen. You know, Paul's not saying to the Ephesian elders, when that happens, you cease to be a church. When that happens, you're instantly un unhealthy as a community. In fact, it could be argued that when that happens, it actually could be a sign of health because it means the enemy is at work trying to counter the true gospel that you're propagating and you're teaching people. You know, Satan hates when we try to make Jesus famous. Satan hates when we say, when we say it's all about him. Satan loves when we embrace ourself, when we embrace works. Just like he did with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. You are able. You can do it. God's not totally being truthful here. You are able. You can do it. Grab that fruit. Climb that ladder. You can do that. Um, you can save yourself. You can be a little bit like God if you just try a little bit harder. He loves that stuff, but he hates the opposite. And so sometimes the presence of false teaching in, in small ways here and there in a church um, uh, can be a sign that we're doing the right thing because we're, we're in that way being attacked. But, but in any case... He's saying it's all part of the plan. The church will be infiltrated, but the wolves will be destroyed in the end. It's like a, um, like a parent in full control telling his or her child, this is going to hurt 
But I promise you it ends well. I promise you. Jesus says in, in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, so don't be surprised when you do. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Speaking more generally to trouble in the Christian life, but Jesus, the Son of God, promises you that you will have trouble in life. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not funny, but kind of is. He promises you. He promises, right? This is in the Bible. So we shouldn't be surprised when we have trouble. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, right? God exists outside of time. He sees perfectly, whereas the, the apostles saw uh, foggily. But Jesus sees very clearly. The church will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome what will kind of seemingly overcome you in the temporal. What will give you trouble? I've overcome that. So don't be afraid. Be encouraged. Take heart. Remember my words. And so what happens then, a lot of times, and we see this in life too, whether it's spiritual or not, is when you take the surprise out of something, it can take the anxiety out of a little bit, right? Or the fear. If you know it's coming, there might be a little bit of fear and anxiety with it still, but if you know it's coming, you can prepare for it. And it's, it takes the shock factor out of it. And so, so goes with it some anxiety with it and some fear um, as well. We can prepare our minds, we can prepare our hearts, and of course, trust that God is everything under control when he prophesies about it, you know? Uh, like Jesus said this, and, and the Apostle Paul said this, and he's writing these inspired letters about it, and Jude himself is, is preparing the church, you know, for this. In these last days, this will happen. The Apostle said it, I'm saying it, Judas saying it. I'm saying this too. Jesus said, our Savior said this. This is part of how the gospel and the kingdom spreads into the world. It faces resistance. We have a true enemy. Satan is a personified but real evil, a true fallen angel who is always against us, and our hard hearts share in that. And, you know, at our, at our core, even as believers, our hearts love lies. You know, so Jesus has to speak countertruths into that, and he does by grace, and he saves us from those lies, but it's a battle. It is a true battle. So again, there's a degree of normality to all of this for, for the church. Not to mean that we should be passive about addressing it. Obviously, with Jude in mind, he's not saying that. But there's a degree of normality for this where we should expect it and we should be ready in that moment to counter it with love in truth. Whether it's preaching that to ourselves, to a friend, with leaders doing that for the whole church. Um, part of what it means to, to feed and to, to continue on and to lead and to help others along in the faith, formally or casually, uh, is to speak against the twisted things that people in the church speak sometimes. The, the, the biggest threat for us will be things that are word-based, that are theological, that are kind of half-truths. That's why in Acts, in Acts 20, Paul's saying this. It won't be obvious things, it'll be teachings. And so we have to be on guard. So anyway, all right. So the first thing he says then is remember, this is what we do in response to the grave warnings of the book. We remember the predictions of the apostles. Remember Jesus talked about this. Remember that it's, we shouldn't be shocked when it occurs. The second thing is, Keep yourselves in the love of God, build yourselves up in your faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful collection of clauses there um, that he includes right at the end of the book in terms of a what, sh what then shall we do uh, type, type teaching. In a lot of ways, I think all four of these clauses are kind of saying the same thing. They're, they're saying remain in the faith, remain in the Christ or the gospel, Keep believing that Jesus died for your sins. 
and that that's enough, it's sufficient. Pray to that end. Ask God to help you from your propensity to wander. I think Christians who, um, are, who, who heed these warnings, who know that there are threats in the world, voices that speak in, that there's a threat here as well, uh, pray a lot. Because we know that um, we're, we are prone to wander. We're prone to entertain things that sound kind of good, but they really aren't. So prayer is included here uh, as well. But it has to be done. I think that all of these things are, are the, it's the great response to seeing others fall away, uh, to battling doctrinal and pragmatic threats that face us every day, again, out there and in here. Build yourself up in the fact that God's grace is enough. You know, remember that Jude here is probably, I think what, what's helpful about these clauses is they probably tell us, kind of in, a, in an opposite kind of way, what the false teachings were in the church. You know, so Jude, remember, is addressing false teachings. He doesn't list them out, though, and say, here's the five things. He's saying, this is generally happening, and it will generally happen. But by the end, saying, keep yourselves in the love of God, by saying, this is what I want you to take away, he's probably kind of subtly addressing what the false teachings are. And that is the teaching that keeping yourself in the love of God is not enough. Right? The gospel is not sufficient. Or maybe God doesn't love you that much. Kind of that good but not great uh, teaching or Jesus plus something else uh, theology. So at the end, he wants them to believe and live in a way that's different from these false teachings. So he says, I want you to not do what they're saying. I want you to keep yourself in the love of God. And that's it. Because that really is enough. God's grace and his power and his resurrection is that sufficient. So do that. Keep yourself in what you already know. Because keep implies you're already there, right? So, so keep believing. Keep yourself in what you already know about God's sufficient and amazing love for you. Say with Paul at the, the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. See the idea of kept there again? What is he keeping? He's keeping the faith. This is probably his last letter he wrote. And it's probably towards the end of his life, right before his martyrdom, when he's in house arrest in Rome, writing to Timothy, one of his disciples and associates, who helped pastor the church in Ephesus, and I think somewhere else too, but he's encouraging him as a pastor, and he's saying um, I, uh, about himself, I've fought the good fight, I have finished my race. And here's this key clause, I have kept the faith. And I love that because I think that's what we actually, as Christians, rejoice in at the end of our life. If there's anything to take pride in ourselves, though we boast in God, not ourselves, it is we still believe the gospel. That gospel I believed 30 years ago when I first was saved or last year when I first was saved, and here I am on my deathbed, knowing my time is running short, I still believe that same gospel. I haven't perverted it. I haven't changed it. I haven't added to it or subtracted from it. I haven't graduated from it. I haven't moved on from it. My spirituality can be summed up this way and no more. Jesus loves me, and he's died for me. If you can say that at the end of your life, you can say with Paul, you can rejoice. It's a, it's a praise and a prayer because I think he's saying, God helped me unto this end. We don't rejoice that we become perfect people because moral perfection is not the goal. It doesn't say here, I have kept the law. It says, I've kept the faith. 
But this also does not mean that moral laziness is the goal either. It just means there's a third goal, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the goal. Belief in Christ and belief in his gospel. And so he writes this way, keep yourself in the love of God. And, and these big picture, kind of abstract, um, hard to pin down things that are about grace. Not easily identifiable because they're so abstract and, and spiritual and big picture. And that's what I love about Christian imperatives or commands like this. Um, if you didn't know this, a lot of the New Testament letters end kind of similarly to this. Keep yourselves in the love of God, build yourselves up in your faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. He has a benediction here too, which picks up on some of this. We'll come to that. But basically, it's these four things. That's, not good. That's what he wants their takeaway to be, these four things. And a lot of times, the New Testament letters will end this way. It's kind of a final benediction or doxology or, or encouragement. What I like about it is, uh, is that they're so mysterious in one sense. You ever thought about it this way? It's kind of revelatory for me this week anyway, but they're kind of mysterious and they're very abstract, very relational, very Christ-focused, but they're very abstract, right? In other words, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, it's, it's one of those things for me where uh, a lot of times Paul will say this, he'll say something like that, he'll have this long sentence and it'll sound something like that and I'll just think, you know, that's amazing, but what in the world does that mean? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Oh, that's, that's great, what? You know, keep yourself in the love of God. Can any, can any of you think right now, what does that mean practically? It could mean a thousand things. It could mean one thing, you know? And that's like the point is, is it's so abstract that it gets hard to apply sometimes. Sometimes not. And this is kind of a list here, but we could read a list like this or a statement of encouragements like this and think, wait for Jesus? That's the takeaway? I'm supposed to wait? Keep myself in something I already know? You know, where's my neat little checklist? For those of us who like checklists, and I'm, I'm in that health group or whatever, but I, that's, that's me. Where's my neat little checklist? There are no checklists here. At least not neat ones, because you can apply this a thousand ways. Where's my checklist? What's well, not here? Because Christianity has more to do with living in the Spirit. In fact, checklists can sometimes take away from waiting and from keeping ourselves in the love of God because we're too busy when we're doing that for stuff like this. We've already done this. We've checked it off. So a lot of times it can take away from true Christian spirituality because we're, we're too busy in those moments. The, 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 here's the thing. The Christian life, I think sometimes, and this is okay, I think this is actually biblical uh, in a way. There are other things to say about the Christian life, but I think that the Christian life sometimes is really hard to explain. The day-to-day, -day, I mean. You talk about your spirituality in the day-to-day -day as a Christian, it's not a neat three-tiered checklist thing. It just isn't. Yeah, you could say believe in love, and we've said that before, so you can say that. There are things you can say, and a lot more. But um, a lot of times we get stuff like this in the Bible, where God wants us to, this is the takeaway. And a lot of times a Christian life then is just really hard to explain because it's not about doing, but about believing continually. And grace is hard to explain. Uh, grace is mysterious and complex and hard to pin down sometimes. But it's so much about Jesus that Christian lives can look so many different kinds of ways, all underneath the umbrella of that. And so we have these catch-all encouragements, these catch-all preaching points 
of do this? What does this mean for your life? Can you say uh, with a clear conscience before God and others, I think I am keeping myself actively in the love of God right now. This isn't passive, by the way. This is an active thing. So can you say that? And I, and I can't purely or fully, uh, but you know, that, that's not really the point. The point is, are you, are you seeking to do it? Are you, are you working at this? You know, so we can, we can fill our lives with activism and outrage at injustice and volunteerism and different kinds of behavior modification, but if we don't actively keep ourselves in the love of God in Christ Jesus or the gospel, if we aren't waiting for Jesus' return with joy and anticipation, if we aren't praying in the Holy Spirit, we are not living distinctly Christian lives. You know, and, and, and sometimes what happens is, um, as Christians, we can quote the Ten Commandments, but we can't quote that. Like, I know the Ten Commandments, but I, I, I can't quote this verse right here. This is a more important verse for you to memorize than the Ten Commandments. You are not under the law anymore. So it's, it's great to know it. That's fine if you want to memorize it, you know, but don't join the chorus of voices out there that get all huffy about our kids not memorizing the Ten Commandments anymore in church. And it's like, that's great if you want to, but I don't think that's that big a deal, honestly, if they don't memorize them, because they're not under them anymore. What I, what I want my kids to know more than the Ten Commandments are these commandments. This is the law that we're under as Christians. This is what we should do on a daily basis. This is, I don't think it's too strong of a statement to say the most important thing that you can do with your life the most important thing you can do on a daily basis as a Christian are these things right here. Not that there aren't other things, but this is the most important thing. This is the law of the gospel, or as Paul says, the law of Christ that we are under. So think about it. And don't think, well, I did that 10 years ago when I prayed the sinner's prayer. Think, what am I doing today? You know, what, what are we as a community doing today uh, to ensure that this is taking place? How is prayer looking How's my faith being built up? How am I knowing the Bible better? How am I embracing Christian friendship to this end? And many other questions like that. Moving on, I think this, also, uh, this is also a, um, a, dr- a direct addressing of the, of the fearful element uh, of this book. And I, and I know I've talked to a few of you about this, and you're not alone. Um, when we read strong admonishing books like this, you know, Jude will elicit fear if we don't have Jesus' love. You, you and I will be afraid reading this book if we don't have Jesus' love. Remember verses 14 and 15, which says, says this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. That's how the last section ends. So it's, like, it's, it's good news for those of us not in that camp, right? Or, you know, as, as we look at injustice and evil in the world, we know that God will address it. And this is a good thing. We want a God who hates evil and who will right all wrongs. He will. He is through the church, and he will in the end. It's good news. Bad news to say part of the ungodliness in the world is actually right here, wrapped around my DNA, right inside my heart. Then all of a sudden, it's bad news. This is what the gospel does, is it says, evil is out there, and it's also in here. And as Christians, we say it's a third place. It's on him, or on Jesus. 
It's the three locales of sin. It's out there in the world. It pokes at us. It affects us. It saddens us. It's also in here, and it comes out of our mouth and our actions and our heart. And it separates us from God. So when we talk about God coming back to right all wrongs, when we talk about him coming against ungodliness, and worthy ungodly, it's extremely bad news. Unless we have a Savior. Unless we can say there's a third locale of sin, and that is my sin is placed on Jesus. He's my Redeemer. He's my Savior. He's a, a bearer of my sin and iniquity. All my ungodliness has been placed upon him. Then we have the hope of release from that. And so, so what I think Jude, Jude's little spin on this then with his language is to go back to this love statement and say, well, the answer to that is keep yourself in the love of God. 1 John 4, 8 says, there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The gospel says God loves us, and he'll never stop. The gospel says he loved us so much, he, he went through six hours of torture and death and hell to bring us back to himself. That's what the gospel says. And it was love that drove him there. So if that's true, and we actually believe that, if that's the center of our faith, I mean, God, God doesn't divorce his people. Like, we divorce. Our marriages are full of divorce in this world sometimes. But God is against it. He's against divorce because he never divorces his, love, his people from himself. Praise be to God. That will never happen. So if you've seen divorce, you've been hurt by divorce, that's not God. That's not the gospel. That will never happen spiritually to you ever again. So if God loves us, if his perfect love is there, it casts out fear. If you read Jude and think, am I one of those people? Go back to Jesus. No, you're not. Jude confidently says to the church, to true Christians, you're not like them. As long as you stay in the love of God, believe that there's really nothing you, you can bring except faith in the gospel uh, then you're protected. You can't lose what God gives. The gospel also says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This is true for all the believers in the room right now. If you're a Christian, there's no condemnation, no punishment. If you're in Christ, if you believe in him, if you have a relationship with him, if his spirit is in you, if you've died to your old self and are raised into a new life, um, if you just believe the gospel, there, there's a promise here of no condemnation. So with that, there's no fear. There's no fear when there's perfect love. So that's what Jude is saying here, I think, with his mention of love, a lot of things. When he, when he talks about it, he's bringing us back to the Lord and saying, though everything may crumble around you, though, though, though you have the admonishment of this letter, Though there's some scary things in it, though the earth give way around us, though ungodliness still reigns in our heart right here, we are in Christ by faith. He's our ark, though the flood's coming. He's our refuge and our way out and our Passover, though judgment's coming. Our exodus, though wrath is coming. Our seal and guarantee and our sign of God's great favor towards us. So you look at the cross if you're a believer you should see God promising you, I promise to save you in the end. I swear, I swear an oath on my, own, on my own name that I will save you in the end. You can bank on it because it's about me saving you and you've trusted in me. You're my child. 
and, uh, and, I will, and I will save you. So it's a sign of that great, that really great favor towards us. Third thing here, guys, uh, and last is save wayward Christians. I'll go through this a little bit quicker, but it's his last thing of what shall we do in light of all this. He says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So why should we do this? Other than the common sense, it's the right thing to do, uh, is because God has done this for us. He even kind of talks about mercy in two senses, right? We are to wait on the mercy of Christ, and we are to show mercy, show that divine mercy to others physically with our words and actions on those around us who doubt, even as Christians. Save them. And so really, these, these verses are actually really descriptive of what's happened to all of us when we believe the gospel. God has shown us mercy. God has saved us by snatching us out of the fire. And he has hated evil unto his own death uh, for us. And his call has let this motivate us to love the church really well. So, um, so just think about this. Before we you know, close the, the book here on, on Jude, uh, part of what we've got to do is think about this. We've got to look at our heart. But this is look around you. Look at other Christians. You know, who do you know who is entertaining lies about Jesus? Who do you know who is entertaining lies about what the essence of the gospel really is? Maybe they're reading Christian self-help blogs, but not their Bibles. Maybe they're being swayed by theologies of the world that puff them up rather than the theology of Christ that brings them low but keeps Christ really high. Or maybe, as it often is, uh, sexual sin is replacing Christ in their lives. And, and I'm not talking about a, um, a, a struggling with sexual sin that's being repented of and, uh, and brought to Jesus with the, with the request, Jesus, help me from this, I hate this. I'm not talking about that. Because Christ dies for all sins. I'm talking about an actual replacing of Jesus with adultery. So, so it's combined with walking away. It's saying, I know this is right and this is wrong, but I, I just really want the wrong too much, that I'm not just going to do it, but I'm going to reject the faith completely. And what happens is people, and I've seen this, is, is they actually not, will not just do that, but they'll stop. They won't believe that Jesus is enough anymore. What happens a lot is when sin is fully, fully embraced repeatedly and not repented of is we just stop believing that Jesus' grace is sufficient, and then we actually do walk away because what are we going to church for then? What do we really care about what he has to say? When, when he says, I've died for all sins, like, yeah, but not this one. But a lot of times, whether it's porn or whether it's, um, you know, it's usually more than that. It's usually a full-blown affair. Um, linking that or ha having that linked with a full-blown apostasy and walking away is extremely common. Uh, some of you probably have known someone knows that has gone that route. So maybe it's that. Could be a lot of things, just a few examples there. But, but what, what Jude is saying here is snatch them away from the fire before it's too late. Love them, have mercy on them, be patient with them when they doubt. Lead them back to Jesus. But then be careful not to get sucked into whatever is leading them away from God as well, yourself. That, that's why Jude says, hate the garment stained by the flesh. So, you know, love the sinner, love the doubter. Uh, but be careful not to get sucked into their bad theology or their sinful licentiousness, their sensuality, whatever it is. Be careful not to, not to love that and get too sucked into that at the same time. 
He closes with one of the great benedictions of, of the New Testament. In verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Which is a fantastic way to end a letter, but, but I, one of my questions this week was, uh, as, it, as it says here, how, how do you close a letter that's so strong an admonishment, you know? There's probably a lot of ways to do that, uh, but I think this is, a, this is a, a, not just a great way, it's an inspired way, it's a God-intended way to do it, and that is with these first three words, which is now to Jesus. After all has been said, I want you to think about Christ, not yourselves. Get yourself out of your mind. Now, here, here's the thought I want to leave you with. Now to Jesus, who is able to do these things, who is able, able, he's powerful to do it, to keep you from stumbling and to present you perfect and blameless before the presence of the glory of God in the end. You know, this is so important, I think, because as Christ says, and I think it's Mark 10, I forget the reference, but he says, basically, it's impossible for us to be saved. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a person to be saved. And so the, the impossibility, the weight of these threats, the weight of these descriptions of sin that we all partake of will overwhelm us. If it were up to us, we, we would wander. But then as Jesus continues, it's impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God, including a sinner being saved. Praise God. Your salvation is possible with God, not with yourself. And God wants to save you. So a, a book like this uh, would really lead to despair if we ended any other way. And fear and anxiety. You know, a book like this should make us run to Christ, right, rather than ourselves. And Jude knows this. God knows this. There's a, there's a reason why it ends with now to him rather than rallying now to us. You know, as if, let's, get, let's rally, guys, we can do this. An obvious thing, but such an important thing. Don't read over that. It ends with now to him. Is that indicative of your spirituality? Do you, do you live in a now to him kind of way? Is that the first thought we have with a book like this? It needs to be. It needs to be. Or we will despair and fear. We'll not be equipped with the right things to ourselves, thwart the false doctrines that just litter this culture and litter this world. We won't know right from wrong and truth from lie. And um, at the end, we'll entertain things that are more about us than Jesus because that's what we like. We like things that are more about us, more list-driven, more easy to check off, more religious, more ladder-climbing. You know, rather than looking at a, a man on a cross, bloodied, dying among criminals as the essence of our faith, that's a humbling, offensive thing. But for the one being saved, it's, it's the power of God. And it's the beauty of God. And it's the goodness of God. And it's enough. It actually is enough. And so by his grace, we never seek to add to it. And, and, and this Jesus here, I mean, he, here's the good news. I'll just, I'll end with this. You know, one day, according to this doxology, this benediction, <clears throat> one day, Christian, Jesus will joyfully present you to God blameless simply because you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins. He will love you then just like he loves you now with such a great love that even death could not hold it back.
Do you receive that? Do you believe that? Or is it not quite enough? The gospel says it. The benediction says it. He's able to prevent you from stumbling, which, I mean, this, the book of Jude is full of stumbling. It's full of stumbling, full of warnings, full of saying, this will happen. And yet at the end, Jesus is able to prevent you from it, able and willing and powerful to, to, to counter it, to not allow you to stumble away from the Lord. He will do it. So ask him to help you to believe. Ask him to prevent you from wandering. Ask him to continue to believe in the gospel. This has to be a part of our life. It is a command of the Bible. If that helps, just think about it that way. These aren't just, oh yeah, interesting. You know, this, this is, these are one of the imperatives, one of the commandments of the New Testament is keep yourself in the love of God. Do whatever it takes. Keep yourself in the love of God. Hold on to that for dear life. Rebuke doctrines that teach otherwise or that seek to pervert its grace into sensuality. Know the Bible really well. Pray. Be strong in grace and make your ultimate song, your rallying song, in the midst of, of fear and doubt and sin and disbelief. May your, your rallying song still be now to Jesus, the author and perfecter and continuer of my faith, the one who's coming back to finish what he started. Now to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jude, uh, these three weeks, God, and just a, a glorious book of, of warnings and graces. As amidst the warnings, God, are promises, promises that you are able and sufficient and willing to fully save and to prevent us from stumbling so that all who don't stumble away from you in the end uh, will look to you and say, Jesus, thank you for preventing me from it, for your grace that, that kept me on the straight and narrow Father, forgive us our sin, uh, our, our disbeliefs, our doubts, our propensities to wander, our, our seekings to add to grace when it really is enough. Uh, keep our antennas up for men and women who speak twisted things uh, inside and outside of the church so that we might know what truth is and what a lie is and what a half-truth is and then what the full truth is instead. Jesus, you died on a cross for our sins, not as an example to follow, but a substitutionary atoning sacrifice to take, actually take away our sins through that act. It was a gift. You gave your body for us. And God, I pray that, that would, uh, the song of that would just resound in our hearts and minds this week. Uh, God, that we'd read our Bibles in light of it, that we'd pray in the Holy Spirit in light of it, that we'd snatch others from the fire who are seeking to doubt it, starting to doubt it. And uh, all along, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Uh, that's abstract, it's tough to pin down, but I love that. It's good that it's that way. Because grace is mysterious, and the Spirit is mysterious. And everything's been done for us, and there's nothing else for us to do. So help us to live our lives in that abstract nature of Christian spirituality this week. Um, with joy, and for the glory of God. Amen.